Welcome to the Teaching and Lectio podcast for the Abbey, a contemplative vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio. You can find previous teachings and our contemplative reading of the scriptures on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at theabbeycolumbus.church. There, you'll also find important announcements, along with the location and time of our all-church gatherings and community groups throughout the city. The Abbey is committed to being a church that helps people notice and nurture the work of God in their own lives, in the lives of others, and in the world around us. Here's this week's message. Um, so this is to say, on the t- as the teaching team at the Abbey, I drew the short straw. Um, <laughs> So I get to be the one that talks to us about money. And I'm not only going to be talking about money, but I do think it's important that we discuss it. If money is a topic that makes you anxious, um, I'll just admit I'm one of those people. If you feel like you could use a little bit more of the kingdom of God in your finances, then stay with me. This is for you. I'm going to read um, Acts chapter 11, 25 through 30. And then we'll get into it a little bit more. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So today what I want to talk about is that the kingdom of God looks like a less lonely society where, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we think collectively about resources for the common good rather than struggling individually against each other for survival. So let me break that down a little bit. I'll start with the less lonely society. There's a phrase that's around in our culture, and maybe you've heard it, but it's that of mutual aid. Mutual aid cares for the material and psychological well-being of each member of the community. Doesn't that sound nice? Isaac Viegas says that mutual aid is a style of collective living that enacts a faith in God's care for all of us. To hoard wealth is to disbelieve in God's benevolence. Through our mutuality, we entrust ourselves to God's providence, not to our culture of greed. So this theme of a less lonely society, of mutual aid, of sharing our resources with one another, this is not a new concept in the book of Acts. Now, again, this is a passage where Christians are first being named as such, and one of those defining factors of what does it mean to be and be named a Christian is that of caring for one another in really practical ways. And some of us have been a part of faith communities where we have felt, frankly, neglected, where our practical needs have gone unmet by the community in moments of great need. Some number of us have actually experienced this hurt here at the Abbey. 
And we'll talk about that a little later. Later. Earlier in the book of Acts, we read in 244 that all who believed were together and had all things in common. In chapter 4, verse 32, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. But I want us to go back even further and look at the Old Testament for a little bit here, because this, again, was not some kind of Christian hippie idea at the start of the church. Historically, God called God's people to be set apart in the way that they cared for the poor. For the rest of the world, it was just an accepted reality that there were haves and have-nots, that there were a few rich and a lot of poor. It is the way it is. Does this sound maybe familiar? But God invited the people of Israel to a different way of being. Leviticus 19.18, in related to our, our resources, says that the basic principle was love for your neighbor. Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8, if there, is, if there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. A few verses later, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. In Leviticus 19, talking about, of course, the agrarian or farming society that it was, there's something of a directive to leave something at harvest, to leave behind something. It says, you shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. In our neighborhood, this might look like the U-Pick Garden by Franklinson Farms, right? At the corner of Martin and Town. Leave some for people who are in need. Leviticus 24, again, same sort of concept when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. This notion is repeated in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 24 over and over and over again. There's even a, a law that permits people to walk through one another's lands as neighbors and take what they need to eat that day. Now, they are directed not to take a container with them to just hoard whatever they can get, but it is encouraged to go into your neighbor's yard and eat what is there for that day, reminding me, of course, of the, the manna that was provided on a daily basis. Again, bottom line, bottom line is that over and over again, God calls God's people to be set apart through practical ways of caring for each other, for their neighbors, for the poor, and for the marginalized. So the kingdom of God looks like a less lonely society where, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we think collectively about resources for the common good rather than struggling individually against each other for survival. So let's talk about that empowered by the Holy Spirit part. Going back to that Acts 2 passage, if we read a little bit before what I read earlier, in verse 43, it says, awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. 
same in Acts 4, verse 31, says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. It goes on, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I'm pausing here to say that there's basically a description of the whole community, right? There's this idea that culturally what we've agreed upon is that we're sharing, that we have all things in common. But then in verse 36, there's like a specific example of this. So of all the people who are doing this, the writer of Acts takes a moment to give us a specific example. And he says in chapter 4, verse 36, there was a, a Levite from Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I'm gonna come back to this because Barnabas shows up again in the, in the uh, passage I read at the beginning in, in Acts 11, where it says Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So in all three of these passages, Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 11, these acts of radical generosity seemed to follow the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit moving in power. These were people living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So why Barnabas? Why set him aside? Why mention him specifically? And here's why I think. Barnabas was a Levite. This is important because Levites were not permitted to own property in Israel. They had to subsist on the contributions of others. Barnabas, however, did own property in another nearby land, something maybe of like a retirement plan which he sold, and he gave the money to the disciples to share with any who had need. Now, seven chapters later in Acts 11, we see the disciples are giving their money as they were able to Paul and Barnabas. I imagine it wasn't difficult to trust Barnabas because he had modeled as a leader the generosity that they were imagining. But right after that Barnabas story in chapter 4, there's another story about someone who sells property. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. I consider this sort of a text of terror because for whatever reason, I remember this story from Sunday school. Anybody else? And I just remember being like, this is scary. Um, for those of you who don't know, Ananias and Sapphira, again, in chapter 5, they also sell a piece of property uh, and they keep some of it for themselves and they give some percentage of what they sold to the disciples to distribute to anyone who had need. So very similar actions to Barnabas, who was praised, Right. I can imagine, and I don't know this, scripture's not super clear about this, but that Barnabas maybe was one of the first who did this radical act of, act of generosity, 
my guess is he got some, some props for that. He got some praise that he was celebrated in the community and that perhaps, I don't know, Ananias wanted a little bit of that, wanted to be recognized. It's understandable. We all want a little at a girl, at a boy. <clears throat> so Ananias and Sapphira, they, they sell the land, as I said, and they, they keep some for themselves. And importantly, in Acts 5, verse 3, Peter approaches Ananias and says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Whew. So Barnabas sells his land, gives that money, all of it, the proceeds, to the disciples to distribute to those who have need. He was moved by the Holy Spirit to do that. Ananias was moved by something else. We're not sure exactly what was going on in the inner workings of his heart, but it was considered to be a lie to the Holy Spirit, a sin against the Holy Spirit. So the messy part of this here is that there's not really a black and white policy. The black and white part, the command part is take care of the poor. That much is, is clear. But as it rates, relates to these acts of radical solidarity and mutual aid, it might, it's, it's, it's saying this is what it might look like to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God looks like a less lonely society where empowered by the Holy Spirit, we think collectively about resources for the common good rather than struggling individually against each other for survival. Thinking collectively about our shared resources is something that shows up in one of our six core practices that we have at the Abbey, and that is generosity, to live and give generously. And I think simplicity is a related concept to this. So I'm going to say a little bit about this. Generosity, the sharing of resources, as has already been stated, again, has always been an intended marker of God's people. God's preferential option for the poor is on display throughout the entirety of scriptures, and this marker was one that set apart the earliest Christians. We were known for, among other things, taking care of each other, taking care of the poor, and not just in good times, right? This Acts 11 passage that we're looking at, you know what's happening here? A famine is on the way. A famine. Let me just ask you, if you know a famine is on the way, what are you going to do? <laughs> That's right. We are going to start like putting all kinds of stuff in our basements or wherever, just hoarding up as many resources as we can. We actually know what we'll do because we lived through a global pandemic. And in early 2020, we could not find toilet paper or hand sanitizer to save our lives, right? We know exactly how we act upon a global threat. Matt and Noah Colvin <clears throat> purchased, for example, in early pandemic, 17,700 bottles of hand sanitizer, turned around and put those on Amazon and sold them for anywhere between $8 and $70 a bottle. That's the kind of human behavior, human instinct that's probably in all of us when we're facing a threat. A famine is on the way. And the early Christians took that moment, took that opportunity 
gather their resources together and to distribute to those who are in need. One of the things I am proud of here at the Abbey is that, again, in that early pandemic time, we created what was called the Shared Economy Fund. And so we gave opportunity for those in the community who you know, weren't as financially impacted by the pandemic as others to give generously so that our brothers and sisters who were deeply impacted by the pandemic, financially speaking, would have an option, would have like a, a rescue net. Um, and so we were able to care for people in those early months. Again, the kingdom of God has an upside down radical economy. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. The invitation as a citizen of the kingdom of God is to trust your king, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to watch God's power on display. It's an invitation to receive daily bread, to rest in the enough of your life, now, there might be some specific ideas stirring in you about living a simpler or more generous life, and that's great. I am actually not here to prescribe what that looks like for you. I'm here to describe what it has looked like, what it looked like in the early church, what it might or could look like. I'm ultimately here to point you to the one who has in mind to put his generosity on display, because that is the kingdom come. And it's Worth mentioning again, I've been talking mostly about money but, and about financial resources, but, you know, this goes beyond that. We have to talk about money because we tend to avoid the topic. But generosity is more than money. It's about our time, our talents, our stuff, our presence. I think one of the things that hinders our ability to to witness displayed generosity, God's generosity, the community's generosity, is a failure to practice simplicity. Are you a person who has bought into the American lie, I'll just call it that, that you need to own one of everything for yourself? <clears throat> okay, this is a little embarrassing, but I'm just gonna admit that one of my favorite um, voices on this topic of simplicity comes from a 1986 contemporary Christian music artist. Um, please stay with me. <laughs> but he has a song, Billy Crockett, called 41 Lawnmowers. Um, 41 Lawnmowers. Uh, and he says this in the song, find a good old neighborhood, a square block of the USA, stake your claim, claim your space, sink your roots and live your days. Build a fence, close it in, raise a lawn and grow some kids. Make a name, name your friends. That's the American way to live in 41 houses, only one street, 41 yards and 82 trees, 41 mowers all sitting in sheds, 41 families in over their heads. And everybody's got their own everything. <laughs> Most of us don't like asking for help. <laughs> Most of us struggle with being in need. And so we have built larger sheds and garages and storage units so that we can be sure we don't have to rely on anyone else. But we miss out on God's generosity and the generosity of the community when we do that. 
So because we're talking about a really maybe touchy subject, I want to say some things that I'm not saying. I want to be clear about making sure these are not the things you're hearing. First of all, I'm not saying ownership is bad, and I'm not saying you should sell your house and give all the proceeds to the Abbey or to your neighbors. You're welcome to do those things. I'm not not saying that, um, but I'm not saying that ownership is bad. God's people still own land, but they were called to, to a posture of recognizing that it wasn't just theirs. It was somehow meant to benefit those in need. And again, this selling of property and giving it to the disciples, this was not a prescription or a policy. Again, Peter said to Ananias, you didn't have to give all of this. He, he highlighted uh, to Ananias his own agency. He said, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Right? He didn't say like, hey, that belonged to us. And after it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal, right? So again, there was no policy that said we had to sell everything and, and give it away. And so I am also not saying that. But I think what is highlighted is that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit have a different relationship with their stuff. And one practice that you might see on display of people filled with the Holy Spirit is that of sacrificial giving. Let me also say this. What I'm not saying is that you should simply tithe 10% of your income to the church. <clears throat> I'm not not saying you should tithe 10% to the church. <clears throat> but I want to be clear that when we start talking about money, I think some people automatically go back to that Old Testament notion and they check the box and think, I don't have to deal with finances anymore as long as I'm doing that. So tithing can become a cover. As one author said, tithing focuses our attention on how much we give rather than on how much we keep. Douglas Crabill in The Upside Down Kingdom says, why did Jesus, Paul, and all the apostles refrain from making use of that well-established biblical tradition of tithe? The tithe simply is not a sufficiently radical concept to embody the carefree unconcern for possessions that marks life in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is Lord of all our goods, not just 10%. It is quite possible to obey the law of the tithe without ever dealing with our love of money. We can feel that our monthly check to our church meets the, the new law of Jesus and never once root out reigning covetousness and greed. It is quite possible to tithe and at the same time oppress the poor and needy. This, of course, goes with Jesus' words in Matthew 23, 23, when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Also, what I'm not saying is that extravagance is bad. Two of my favorite stories in the Gospels, one of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when the son returns, there is a very extravagant, probably pretty expensive feast that takes place. 
Or what about the woman who poured expensive perfume at the feet of Jesus and the disciples sort of get up in arms about it because we could have sold that perfume for money for the poor. And Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you. He honored the extravagance of the woman pouring expensive perfume at Jesus's feet. So it seems to me that there is also room for some extravagance. Before I close, I want to talk about some practicalities as it relates to the Abbey. So last month in our community formation group, or at least the one I'm a part of, side note, Aaron said this at the beginning, but if you're not in a community formation group, I hope part of what you hear in the story I'm telling just like kind of whets your appetite for it because this was a beautiful and stunning conversation that is available to you uh, should you choose to access one of those small groups. Anyway, I digress. So one individual in our group had been going through a season, a very difficult time, and another individual in our small group risked asking a vulnerable question. And she turned to her and she said, you know, fumbling through, like, how do I say this? And she just said, how did we do? How did we do as a community in taking care of your tangible, practical needs in a time of suffering? And examples were provided of what was helpful and what was meaningful, and also some examples of what was a little painful. But a conversation ensued in which people began naming some of the challenges of feeling cared for by one another. And I thought that the feedback was so profound and so important and so much part of this topic that I wanted to share some practical suggestions that emerged. By the way, I also asked for permission from everyone in that small group to talk about this. First thing, thinking about resources that I think probably all of us have. One of those resources we probably all have, I don't have mine on me, but is a phone. So the first principle I want to say is send the text. Can you just say that back to me? Send the text. Okay, here's what I mean by that. So someone in our community is going through a difficult time where there are some real tangible practical ways that they could receive care. That could be um, in major life events happening, the death of a loved one, the birth of a child, moving, I mean, you, you name it, any sort of practical scenario. And here's, I think, sometimes what happens. This is part of what we talked about. Some of us, myself included, go through these like mental gymnastics of like, oh, I don't want to... I don't want to burden them. They're going through so much. Like, my text, you know, is just going to be annoying or just, like, one more thing they have to respond to or deal with right now. I'm just going to, like, pray quietly or, you know, whatever. Um, send the text. <laughs> Meaning, let them know that you're thinking of them. I would discourage advice giving, obviously. Um, and I would say, don't expect a response. This is not a time for like, hey, why didn't you respond to my text, you know? But it is a moment to just show up for each other in honestly one of the lowest hanging fruit kind of ways, right? If you don't have their number, reach out to the person you do know at the Abbey and say, hey, do you have Angie's number so I can send her a quick text? The other thing I want to say is you are not a burden, you are not a burden, but you're carrying burdens. And scripture tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens. 
and as a woman in our small group sort of highlighted, bearing one another's burdens isn't easy. It's not comfortable. It means we take on some of the burden. That's what it means. A couple days ago, I was out to dinner with my husband, and he read something to me from the internet, which, by the way, that's a really good snapshot of just our life together. Eating dinner, he's reading me something from the internet. Uh, but he read this, and I thought, can you send that to me? Because I'm going to read it to, to our, our, our people on Sunday. And it says this. The commodification of friendship is the most annoying thing to come out of the internet in ages. You're supposed to help your friends move, even if it's hard work. Or stay up with them when they're sad, even if you're going to lose sleep. You're supposed to listen to their fears and sorrows, even if it means your own mind takes on a little bit of that weight. They will drive you to the airport, and then you will make them soup when they're sick. You're supposed to make small sacrifices for them, and they are supposed to do that for you. And there's actually, this is important, going to be rough patches for both of you where the balance will be uneven and you will still be friends and it will not be unhealthy. Life is not meant to be an endless prioritization of our own comfort. Now, this was not, to my knowledge, a Christian who was speaking about the kingdom of God. But when I heard that, that's what came to my mind. Yes, And here's the thing, if I could just offer something of a pastoral word here. I think at the Abbey, we've done some things pretty well. And some of those things include that we've talked quite a bit about emotional health. We talk quite a bit about boundaries and having healthy relationships with one another. We talk about Sabbath. We talk about contemplative practices. Hopefully, some of our work has helped you notice some of your inner landscape, right? Maybe you've noticed as you've been a part of the Abbey, things like what is life-giving to you? What drains you? I hope that you're all more knowledgeable and equipped with those things. But what I need to say, not completely as a corrective, but certainly as a little bit of a dance, right? Like, there's no perfect balance here, but I do think that there's a dance. Those things, Sabbath, boundaries, contemplative practices, emotional health, None of those things were meant to be excuses to not show up for each other. Do I want to see people in relationships for years where they're constantly giving and killing themselves to meet someone else's needs? No. That is codependence. (laughs) Uh, And we'd encourage boundaries, right? But are there seasons where the scales are tipped in a direction and it's a little tiring? Sure. So when a request comes up, a request like, hey, I need help moving, or I need some meals, or, um, you know, can someone help me with X or Y? Can, Can anybody volunteer with the kids? And your first thought is, I don't want to do that for whatever reason. And I'm not here to demonize that first thought. I have it too. I'm tired. I'm stretched thin. I'm weary. I don't think I can do anymore. You don't have to believe everything you think. Now, that's a whole sermon unto itself, but I'm just offering it briefly to say, it's okay if your first thought is, I don't really want to do that. And is it possible that you can tap into a value and do it anyway? Not every time, but sometimes. And notice what happens, because I guess 
that God will give you the energy, the encouragement, and there might be a greater gift than you could imagine in the living out of kingdom value. The kingdom of God looks like a less lonely society where empowered by the Holy Spirit, we think collectively about resources for the common good rather than struggling individually against each other for survival. I wanna leave you with just a few reflection questions for the week. They'll be on the screen if that's helpful. So you have some time, you can maybe even just jot down one or two of these if that serves you. But some things to consider is where, as it relates to your own need, do you feel a little lonely? Where could I use a little help from my friends? Or this is a tough one, what keeps me from asking for help? On the other side, number two, when or where or how have I seen the the people of God show up for me in practical ways? And as you reflect on that, consider expressing gratitude to the people who've shown up for you in those moments. A third question maybe to sit with is, what resources do I have? Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking like, I don't have a lot of money, uh, extra money. I don't have, you know, X, Y, Z. Well, what do you have? Name, make a list. Maybe it's your house, your car, your time, your talent, some yummy food that you made. Maybe it's your words, your phone. Remember, send the text. Maybe you have an extra shop vac. Thank you, Teddy Brown. I don't want to own a shop vac. I just don't want one in my house. It's taking up too much space. I have a small, relatively small house. I reach out to Teddy when I need one. Lastly, what would the kingdom come look like if it came to my finances and if it flowed out of my finances? What might that look like? And listen, this this won't happen overnight. This is a big topic many of us try to avoid thinking about. But the kingdom of God is a patient kingdom. But let's agree to move in this direction. Let's take care of each other because it has always been a marker of God's people. Let's worship together.